Emma Anderson is Associate Professor of North American Religious History at the University of Ottawa. In beautiful prose and spectacular historical detail, The Death and Afterlife of the North American Martyrs, her recent book from Harvard University Press, takes readers on a journey of more than 300 years, exploring how a group of eight Frenchmen were selected from amongst the thousands of victims of a brutal 17th century encounter between natives and Europeans to become celebrated martyrs. Anderson explores the details of the deaths themselves, as well as the meaning of good deaths in Iroquois and European cultures, before turning to the saints' afterlives, their continual remembering and reinvention in the popular collective imagination from their time to our own, in Anderson's words. We have her here today to tell us about the book. Welcome, Emma. Thank you, Hilary. So I wanted to start off by asking you what drew you to the history of New France to begin with. Well, to all the graduate students out there, I would say that things happen when you're not looking. It was actually when my husband and I were on a belated honeymoon in the American Southwest that I first became interested in what would become my life's work. It was going to visit all the mission churches in Arizona, New Mexico, and seeing uh, the way in which European, predominantly Spanish, Catholic artisans worked with Native people to create kind of hybrid buildings, paintings, retablos, that I first started being interested in colonial Catholicism. And it really, I, I saw myself as going down a path looking at Spanish uh, Jesuits and Franciscans in the American Southwest until someone quite innocently mentioned to me, you're Canadian, you should read the Jesuit Relations. So I tottered off to the Harvard uh, Library to try to find what I thought would be maybe a single book, maybe a, at the most two volumes. And it was one of those moments like the parting of the Red Sea, where I was in Widener Library. There's those, all those odd shelves that kind of that, that go apart. And as I looked, there was 78 volumes. It took up four library shelves. And I thought, having worked with the most sparse, difficult kinds of texts, often in translation, I thought, you know, here's, here's the mother load. You could roll around on these texts. You could read these things for the rest of your life. And that's where, really, my deci- uh, decision to, to bring my study further north and look at cultural, colonial connections in, in Canada was really born. Fantastic. So how did this project then on the North American martyrs evolve out of your previous work on the journey of an Innu convert? I really think that the grains of one book, the seeds of one book are found in another. And often in ways that we don't expect, way back when I was working on my my first book, I went to the shrine of uh, the North American martyrs in Midland, Ontario. And the main reason I wanted to go there was to see uh, the reliquary with the, with the skull in it, of Jean de Brébeuf. At that time, I was not interested in Jean de Brébeuf comme tel, like the big Canadian uh, saint and martyr that I would later write about in this book, but I was interested in him because he was one of the few people who had extant remains who had actually known the character in my first book, the historical personage Pierre-Antoine Pasta Deschamps. I thought to myself as I looked at that skull, once there were living eyes in those sockets, that saw and knew my unknown man, my aboriginal man, Pierre-Antoine Pastadeshwan. And it was really only later, as I mulled that over, I thought, that skull was pretty interesting. Who was that man? Who was Jean de Brébeuf? And uh, 
that's really kind of, I guess, the connection between the two. I also thought for the second project, it would be interesting to do perhaps a, a project which more encompassed both perspectives. Essentially, my first book, um, The Betrayal of Faith, was about one man's biography, the story of a young man who was taken to France as an uh, a 11 or 12-year-old, uh, who was completely remade, reforged as a Catholic, and then sort of set loose back into his native culture. This, I wanted to do something that more explored both European and Native perspectives on encounter, and looked at their violence. Right, which is a nice segue to my next question, because really the first chapter especially of this book is highly evocative and at times even shocking. You really describe in great detail the deaths of the Jesuit martyrs. Can you tell us a bit more in depth um, about how death, in particular this idea of the good death, was envisioned by the Iroquois, Wendat, and the French in the 1640s? Well, I really think there was almost a sort of perfect storm of elements that would make torture, violence, and dying honorably or dying well um, important to all of the groups that were involved uh, in these bloody events in the 1640s. In a sense, if, if we want to sort of start and triangulate, if we look at the Jesuits first, the Jesuits had been in, in Canada um, long enough by this point to begin to be frustrated by how little inroads they'd made. Initially, when the Jesuits came to North America, they were really blithe about their uh, chances of converting an entire continent, almost so much so that it, it seems almost foolhardy. They came really with a handful of people. They thought that they would be able to do what their gray-robed Recolet brothers had not been able to do. They envisioned confidently that uh, what they saw as absences within Native culture. They looked around, they saw ni foi, ni hua, ni loi. No law, no king, uh, no faith. Uh, they thought, we'll just give them ours, and we'll completely transform this, this savage, howling wilderness into this, this sort of perfect, ideal community where the French king is honored, where the Catholic Church is respected. Really, they wanted to remake what had become an embattled and bloody Europe on North American soil. But quickly, they started to realize that all those things that they had thought were lacuna or absences within Native culture, there was in fact a vibrant, durable, extant civilization there, which in many ways uh, had very different ideals than that of French Catholicism. So in the, at the beginning of the 1640s, we begin to see pessimism and despair seeping into Jesuit accounts. They start to be uh, describe themselves less as sort of confident crusaders for Christ than as these sort of like desultory heroes coming to Canada to suffer, in effect to un un undergo a living martyrdom. Then quickly what we start to see is because of the dynamics between different Aboriginal groups uh, that led to kind of escalating conflict and war, which I'll discuss in a moment, uh, opportunities for real living, red rather than white martyrdom, were becoming more and more um, unavoidable. So in a sense, I think from the Jesuit perspective, dying well in Canada became the new way of conversion. It's very foreign to our own kinds of sensibilities, but they really believed in the words of Tertullian that the, the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. They looked around, they said, what haven't we done? We've tried um, a sort of uh, more trenchant approach. We've tried taking their young and educating them overseas. 
Uh, we've tried speaking to and reasoning with their elders, trying to uh, persuade them away from their traditional religion. Nothing has worked. Maybe we need to start dying. So I don't think it would be an exaggeration to say that in the 1640s, the Jesuits began to entertain notions, even welcome the idea of, of being martyred for their faith, because they felt it would crack open Aboriginal hearts to their message. They also were our first ethnographers, our first anthropologists, and they noticed that uh, courage, valor, endurance were important values within many of the native cultures that they, uh, they encountered. Among the Wendat people, among the Iroquois, they noticed in revulsion uh, the post-war practices uh, that often accompanied uh, the victorious parties in which uh, warriors would seemingly callously to Jesuit eyes torture one another to death. Uh, they noticed that um, there were unbreakable rules about what one could and couldn't do in these circumstances, that even if one was consigned to hours and hours of unbearable torture, escalating and ending only one, in one's death, that one had to hold fast for one's community. One was a representative of something bigger than simply oneself. So we can start to see that it's almost like a dark machine. The cogs start to turn one on the other. These mechanisms of the desire to die and the desire to kill start to intermesh. Hmm. But before we really uh, consider, we need to, to sort of turn the whole problem uh, on another axis and look at, at the native situation. In the 1640s, having had a, a growing although very tiny still in New France, unlike New England, uh, European population, native people were starting to die in droves uh, from European pandemics. This led uh, many native groups to escalate warfare as a solution. We always need to remember that unlike European warfare, where the main aim is to kill the enemy, in native warfare the aim is to capture the enemy and make that enemy a friend through rites of adoption. Uh, when, we, when we think about post-war ritual, we almost always think of uh, escalating torture and execution, but in fact that was very much the minority. Why on earth would you throw away perfectly good people when you could remake them through these sort of adoptive rituals into one's own kin? I've always thought it was the most fascinating kind of religion in the world that can bring back the dead. We have in Christianity, of course, Lazarus being raised. But Native people in the 17th century believed they could literally bring back the souls of the beloved dead, the mother who had died in childbirth, the warrior who had fallen in battle, and put their souls into the body of a living captive. And so for that reason, getting those new people, getting those new bodies, so these souls could return, the souls sort of hovering somewhere, that so they could come back. This was the major major reason for warfare. So there remained those two roots, the minority root of those who were killed as a sort of a sacrifice and as a retribution against the enemy, and the, the role of the majority, women, children, and a lot of men who would be adopted into uh, the, her uh, the uh, victorious community. Right, and as you said, it was those pandemics, actually, that was also driving this escalation. So it would have been the mother who died in childbirth, maybe the warrior who died... 
um, you know, bravely in battle, but it also, and probably more specifically, were all these people who were dying now of these epidemics. That's driving the replaced. need for replacement. Exactly. So what right. I find fascinating is that both the Jesuits and Native people in the 1640s were doing the same thing. They were faced with a novel situation, and they looked for answers, they looked for consolation to their respective religious paths. The Jesuits said, what have Christians done since the time of Christ? They've died heroically. They've been martyrs for the church. When they needed to convert new people, they were not frightened to die for their beliefs at the hands of, of their enemies, to right. make them their friends. Native people, looking at the specter of epidem epidemics, said, what have we always done? What has always worked? We get new people from uh, tribes. If we can't get our way by diplomacy, we will get our way through forced adoption and sort of religious repatriation. Both were trying to do the same sort of, uh, of mechanisms. And it's just they happen to hook into one another in this particularly deadly way. So of the North American martyrs, probably the two best known, and you point this out in the book, are Isaac Shogue, um, who becomes kind of the face of the American martyrs, the U.S. American martyrs in some sense, yes. and then Jean de Brébeuf, who becomes sort of the, the face of the Canadian martyrs. Um, and in both you talk, uh, in the book you talk about both of their deaths um, at some length, as well as the deaths of their companions who are with them. What are, were some of the sort of um, intra-clan debates that were happening among the Iroquois in the tense moments before uh, the deaths of both Jogues and his companions and then Brébeuf and his companions? Well, what I wanted to highlight in the book is that very much um, we're dealing with three, over 300 years of hagiography, saint-making stories, mm. and the story that they want to tell about these deaths uh, tends to be one that's formed, not surprisingly, by Christian master narratives, that of Jesus himself, the kind of king of the martyrs, and all of uh, early Christianity. And they've tried to almost force a 17th century colonial story into the kind of uncomfortable slipper of early Christianity and uh, the persecution by, by the Roman state. And for various <coughs> reasons, which we'll get into, I'm sure, this doesn't really work. What I wanted to do in this book was to show how complicated these two men's stories were and at how many points in, in time things could have gone very differently than they did. Let's take Isaac Shokes first. As you said, he's been uh, sort of adopted by American Catholics as uh, probably, well, the first and, and very much uh, one of the foremost of their homegrown saints. Because he happened to fall on what is now the soil of upstate New York, he is a kind of American by adoption, even though he was a Frenchman by birth. Uh, there's a big shrine in honor of him and the other two so-called American martyrs, Jean de la Lande and René Goupil, in Orisville, New York. Uh, to me, Isaac Jogues is interesting because he's someone who was a failed adoptee. We talked a, a minute ago about the two options uh, open to one as a captive in a post-war context. Isaac Jogues actually was a prisoner of uh, the, uh, the Mohawk captured him for over a year. He was finally, uh, he finally escaped, was liberated uh, by the Dutch, sent all the way back to Fran France, only to voluntarily return and ask for uh, or to be reassigned to the very same people who had previously been his captors. Once he returned uh, to what is now upstate New York, he was executed um, almost as quickly uh, as he arrived. To me, Jogues shows how, uh, we've just talked about how 
ways of dying in Iroquois and Wendat cultures had a lot of similarities with Jesuit ideas about martyrdom. But with Job's captivity, we can mostly see the discontinuities in terms of culture. Job's was not a perfect candidate for adoption into an Iroquois society. And of course, one of the reasons was what for, uh, for Native people was his bizarre penchant for celibacy. He, one of the main reasons that, uh, that people were so gung-ho about receiving new captives and remaking them into vessels for the returning souls of their beloved dead is this was literally a way to get back one's vanished, dead husbands and wives. And yet Job's, because of his vows of eternal chastity, could not play ball in this way. Uh, he also held himself at bay from many uh, Iroquois Uh, cultural and religious rituals, believing them to be of demonic origin. He even had scruples about eating meat that had been uh, in some ways consecrated uh, in in Mohawk uh, ceremonies. So in some ways, his resistance to incorporation partly hastened uh, his eventual martyrdom. It was a long process for him. By contrast, Brebeuf, I forgot to mention when it comes to Jogues, what should happen to him was um, extremely controversial within the community. Mm-hmm. At this point, uh, we know from um, Demos's wonderful work on captives that uh, quite a lot of um, Europeans who were captured, whether they were Jesuit priests, whether they were uh, Puritan girls, were eventually uh, repatriated, often ransomed, to their families. Uh, there were uh, elements within the Mohawk community that wanted to do the same thing with Isaac Shoves, recognizing his value, perhaps, uh, to uh, the Mohawk, uh, to the Jesuit order. Yeah, um, and there's that, yeah, no, because you describe, I mean, that moment, it's, it's the show, correct, that, that there's this tall youth whose name we don't get, but who actually gets injured in the, in the context of defending Jogue bodily. He's basically saying this... This youth is saying, don't do it, let's ransom him. Yes. And yet he gets knocked over the head, right? Exactly. (laughs) He actually gets injured in trying to defend uh, Jogues against what would become the the murderous drop of the hatchet. You almost never hear about that in the hagiographic sources. This is what I wanted to try to do in my book is to to show the kinds of nuance, to show that uh, Native people were not faceless, they were not nameless, there was controversy, there was hesitancy, there was ambivalence on their side also. They're not like some kind of great tractor or monster truck that kind of ran over the martyrs. These were people who were hesitantly kind of feeling their way along, and in some cases who were willing to put their own uh, lives on the line in trying to save uh, or intervene uh, in these cases of what eventually became deadly violence and what was recognized uh, in 1930 as as an example of, of supreme sacrifice for right. one's religious belief. But it was actually this debate amongst the clans about what to do, and and it's the way that you describe it was really wonderful because you get this sense, you kind of telescope out, and the sorts of activities that we might, without thinking about it, right, as we're so embedded in this particular cultural environment, we might think of as quite normal, right, a priest on his knees praying. But when you telescope out and you sort of give us Mm -hmm. the perspective of Native people watching that, 
right? Here's this guy who they're trying to adopt. They're trying to make him part of the clan, and he's doing these odd things like refusing to eat meat and spending hours on his knees outside of the village. Totally antisocial behavior that obviously would preclude his correct adoption in any kind of exactly. uh, social framework, right? Yes, that, you're right. Yeah. A lot of the ritual gestures were seen as uh, as perhaps elements of witchcraft. The, right. the constant uh, making of the sign of the cross over his body, over those of others, the uh, desire to baptize children, the muttered prayers, the upturned eyes, the kneeling posture, all of these were seen as being very unfamiliar. And of course we need to remember with Jogues, uh, he, he was in a context in which uh, most people had not had previous exposure to Roman Catholicism. Right. The form of Christianity that they would have heard about uh, more would have been that of the Protestantism of their neighboring uh, uh, Dutch. Yeah. So Brebeuf, though, has, and in some ways I think Brebeuf's murder or murder death is um, is one of the more kind of stunning of the books because it takes place over a long time. So, so yeah, tell me a bit about, or tell our audience a bit about uh, okay. Brebeuf's death because it's different than Joe. Joe goes quick. Yes. There's a debate. Joke- Jokes, in some sense, is a is a long and lingering death, just because of his long captivity, and then his escape, and then and his, his recapture, return. and then. But his actual execution was was quick. Jean de Brebeuf and Gabriel Lallemand, on the other hand, suffered hours of ritual torture alongside, it must be said, other Aboriginal captives who, again, are written out of the narrative. And in a way, we can think of this book as sort of reinserting a lot of the people who have been written out of history. You mentioned, of course, the young man, Nameless, who tries to save Isaac Jones from his death blow. The other is that uh, the, the many people who suffered alongside uh, Brebeuf and Lallemand, many of whom were also Catholic, and yet who have not received the same sort of beatification and canonization as these North American martyrs have. Um, we need to remember that Brebeuf and Lallemand fell in the context of a war. They were not killed outright during battle, as many of the other North American uh, uh, martyrs, like Antoine Daniel, for example, were. Uh, They were taken hostage, and again, there was the controversy of what to do with them. This is another thing that, although it's in the Jesuit relations, because for some reason it never made it into the index, people don't know about it. Uh, There was actually uh, an aged Onondaga warrior who put up his own wampum, in exchange for the lives of these two missionaries. We don't know what happened in between his having done this and it being decided effectively to leave these two Jesuits alive and what were eventually reversed this decision and led to their deaths. But one suspects that from from all the documentary evidence. It seems to have been largely uh, Jean de Brebeuf's unwillingness to stop singing, preaching, and hectoring uh, the victors. Uh, about the the necessity to convert to Christianity that might have played uh, a role in his eventual death. And so something that you mentioned in the book is that in some ways, Jean de Brebeuf, he really, he dies like an Iroquois. I mean, he really, he is, he assimilates his own death to the rituals that were expected in some sense of a warrior. Um, tell, Tell us a bit about that. Well, I think that Jean de Brebeuf's death is, frankly, the most inter- the most interesting of all of those uh, men, both recognized or ir- unrecognized as martyrs, because it has all of the elements. Brebeuf, of course, was the veteran of what was called Huronia at the time. He had been here for uh, much, much of his life, longer than any other of the missionaries. 
And he'd had time to observe many Native people go to their deaths, many people being, uh, being tortured, and to look at the norms for uh, their behavior, their expectations, uh, for how people were to act, even in the extremities uh, of pain. Braybuff tried to meet and tried to honor uh, Native expectations for how to die well. At the very one and the same time, he tried to become himself uh, a martyr for Christ, and through shedding his blood to fecundate this new world soil so that uh, the cross could be better planted there. Uh, he tried to walk in both, both ways at, uh, through enduring a series of escalating torture, which led to his, his death. Right. Um, so, so after the death of, of these martyrs, because a lot of this book is really actually about their afterlives, as you, as you call it, and as I pointed out in my uh, little introduction here, you know, the question of what happens, they're remembering and reinvention then in the popular collective memory. So once they, they have died, shortly before, and you describe then this really fruitful collaboration, we might call it, between this young woman, Catherine de Saint-Augustin, Paul Ragonneau and Jean Brébeuf, who's dead, actually, who's at dead. this point. Yes. But there's this fruitful collaboration after his death. What, what's that relationship like? Oh, this was one of the most fascinating things to research and write, because really what we're seeing emerging here is kind of a spiritual love triangle. We have Paul Ragonneau. Paul Ragonneau was at uh, Midland. He was at uh, what is now Midland, Ontario. He was at uh, St. Marie, which was the Jesuit headquarters, he was so close when uh, Jean de Brébeuf and Gabriel uh, uh, Lallemand died that he could actually see the fire from the pyre, which, uh, w- which was used to, to torture them. It seems to me that Paul Ragonneau had serious survivor's guilt. At this point, it, it, it really seemed almost inevitable that every last Jesuit and every last Christian Wendat would be either driven from their territories or killed. He fully expected to meet a martyr's death. It never arrived. He spent the rest of his life in trying to obtain for his fallen comrades the laurels of being recognized as martyrs, to have them canonized, have them um, receive the, the respect and the recognition of the universal Catholic Church. This was a man on a mission. Uh, but his way of doing so, uh, doing so was, was very much historiographic. He wanted to write down in sort of vivid detail these highly colored accounts of their lives, their heroic virtues, and their martyrs' deaths. It was very much past-focused. He needed a partner, and the perfect partner arrived in the person of Catherine de Saint-Augustine, who, in her own right, is a fascinating uh, character. She had actually managed to evade many of the laws about uh, the youth of the youth of, uh, of nuns in coming overseas, coming to Canada at the age of only 16. Okay. She arrives, she never meets Jean de Brébeuf, who will become such an important person uh, in her spiritual life. She never meets him while he's alive. She only hears about him through these kind of agonized memories of um, Paul Ragonneau. Uh, in fact, the, the primary relationship starts off being between Catherine de St. Augustine and Paul Ragonneau. He tells her uh, many of the details of his life, uh, life on the, the sort of hinterlands, uh, he tells her, tells her about this fall of Huronia, uh, the horrible uh, torture of, of, these, uh, of his brethren. Um, but it's really only after Paul Ragonneau goes back to France, breaking off this quite intense relationship they have of 
being co-promoters of, of these North American martyrs, uh, that Catherine starts to get to know Bra- uh, Brebeuf kind of on a personal basis. Before, her contribution to the cult was primarily ritual. And in, in this way, it was so much more kind of innovative and inventive than what Ragano was doing. Ragano looked at the, the lives and accomplishments of the martyrs very much in the past tense. What they'd done as missionaries, what they'd done as martyrs. The book closes. Catherine de St. Augustine opens it up again. She's like, what can these saints in heaven who were with Celestial Court do for us in the here and now? And as a very practical woman and a nursing nun, she starts to use the relics that, that have been preserved, the bones of Brebeuf and of Gabrielle Lallemand, in her daily role as a nursing sister. She grates little pieces of these bones into the beverages and soups that she's serving to her uh, patients to obtain miraculous cures. She even converts uh, a wounded Protestant soldier in the same way to the Catholic faith. So for her, it's very much a future focus. The martyrs are not special necessarily because of their lives in the past tense, but because what they can do for us now and in the future. They are become defined by Catherine de St. Augustine as the colony's guardians, as uh, their inspiration, as their guide, as their spiritual protectors in the here and now. And I think this is why uh, Catherine is so predisposed after Paul Ragano's departure to start this very intense relationship with the then deceased Jean de Brebeuf through visions. Uh, he even serves her communion in a sort of spiritual way. And at times, because Catherine had problems with demonic possession, he almost becomes like a counter-possessive force which allows her to maintain her spiritual equilibrium. So it's a very intense and very messy but very fascinating relationship between this alive woman, alive man, and this disembodied spirit, uh, yeah. this dead martyr. Yeah, it's, it's one of also one of my favorite sections of the book, I think, where you really, as you said, the spiritual love triangle, as it were. So at that point, um, your book is, is tracing you know, the, these hundreds of years of history of this, the afterlife of these martyrs, and at that point, you know, there's sort of a dip in interest, and then in the 19th century, the cult revives again in um, in French Canada, in Quebec. So why why does that happen? What why what does in the it 19th die and then century why does it come back to life? Yeah. yeah, I guess why in the 19th century does it come back to life? Okay, well, first of all, we need to remember kind of what happened towards the end of the 17th century and into the 18th century. Basically, all hell breaks loose, both uh, at, at home in France and then here in North America. We get the French Revolution, then we get the fall of Quebec. We're, we're really heading into a time where it, it, it seems like bleak days for the cult. And there's even a kind of apocryphal story, no one really knows if it's true or not, that one of the, the relics of the North American martyrs, Gabrielle Lamont's thigh bone, was used actually as an, an, uh, a weapon of iconoclastic attack. It was actually used to break and derange other uh, holy objects in Paris. Who knows if this is true, but it's it's certainly a wonderful story in this showing. Is, this is during the French Revolution. During the French Revolution. That they would have taken this femur and run around. And exactly. <laughs> and we even see it in, in art. I know we're going to talk a, a little bit about perhaps um, imagery later in, in the interview, but it seems like the, the cult's fallen on, on terrible times. Here in Canada, of course, with the fall of Quebec uh, a little earlier, uh, we get the complete 
pretty much banning of the Jesuits. Um, it seems pretty much by 1800, with the death of the last uh, member of the Jesuit order, and the giving of all of these manuscripts, all of these relics, to the caring of the, the Augustinian nuns, that pretty much the cult is dead on its feet. And yet, only a little while later, only a couple decades, and we get the, the, the romantic revival of, uh, of the murders. And I think really the reason for this is because with all their, their ingenuity, uh, Quebecois theologians start to appropriate the story of the martyrs as being kind of like a story in miniature of their own fall. With the rise of this kind of very florid, ultramontane, ultra-romantic, ultra-lush, but also ultra-conservative spirituality, Catholic spirituality uh, in Quebec, the martyrs take on this new luster. Because really at the basis, what is the message of martyrdom? Losing is winning. Defeat is victory. It's the same kind of paradoxical logic that we see with the the salvific death of Jesus, really. It's that everything looks to be ending, but it's actually really just beginning. The martyrs took on a totally new coloration for the Quebecois in the 1840s, because they were seen as such a perfect example of how one could be these perfect kind of paschal victims, uh, sinless, uh, expiatory, and in some ways, you know, inspiring and hopeful. It's it's a wonderful kind of Rumpelstiltskin, straw into gold kind of story of how the martyrs become rehabilitated. Right, and, and in this case, for, for those of our listeners who don't know that much about Quebec history, I mean, this this moment... Uh, that you're talking about here is the um, the kind of generation and a half, maybe two generations after the defeat um, by of Quebec by the English or of the French, and and this sort of shocking, I mean shocking for the people in New France defeat where they come under the the Protestant British crown. Exactly, um, and this poses this huge theological problem of meaning. What? What, what, what could be the meaning of this? Right. Obviously, God was on our side. How could he allow us to come under the yoke of these godless English Protestants? There must be a reason. And in fact, that's why these two events are so so strongly linked in this, this cult of the martyrs and the, the story of it. First, we have the fall of Quebec. Then, in a sense, we have the answer to all of these agonized questions about why we have the French Revolution. Quebec theologians were horrified by the anti-clericalism of the French Revolution, by the destruction, profanation of churches, the murder of uh, surreligieuses and clergy, and they saw it as, in fact, an example of what God had wanted to rescue Quebec from. In a sense, they start to see the English not as these wonderful victors who've been blessed by God, but as the kind of mindless uh, blade by which the umbilical cord linking Quebec with uh, the mother country of France has been severed. God, ah, all is clear now. He protected them. He kept them inviolate from this torrent of anti-clericalism and anti-religious violence that would occur in France during the Revolution. This becomes, in fact, the dominant explanation of the fall throughout all of 19th century Quebec uh, intellectual history. Now, there were, of course other voices that champion kind of other ideas, less theological ideas. Maybe if Quebec had encouraged more um, 
uh, more immigration, and uh, including Protestants, Jews, other uh, religious groups, other than insisting on a purely Catholic state, maybe we would have had the wherewithal to stand up to the English. This is what uh, 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 many of the more secular-minded or liberal historians said. But the dominant um, approach was this clerical nationalism, uh, which championed a very theological interpretation of Canadian history. Right, and in that sense then, this idea, can sort of see the parallels there with how the martyrdom, this idea of victory through defeat, right, what looks like death, but you actually rise phoenix-like out of the ashes, right, you can see, this is, I think, your point, right, the, the parallels there then with the, the sort of political story of, of Quebec in this period exactly. as well. It also allows Quebec to um, reposition itself vis-a-vis France. Quebec now is the chaste, unspoiled, perfect cradle of Catholicism. And France is the apostate, whorish mother uh, who has repudiated it. It's, it's very strong in, in the rhetoric. And yeah, the martyrs tie into that because they only achieve their glory through suffering, just like Quebec. Right. So you described so many promoters, you know, over the course of the hundreds of years that that you cover, promoters of the American martyrs over the centuries. Who stands out for you now as you look back on this project? There's so many, and it it would be, it's almost hard to narrow it down. I think some pivotal figures have to be the Catherine de St. Augustine that we've already talked about in partnership with Paul Raganow. Had they not worked to do this sort of Janus-faced cult, looking back, uh, making uh, all those records of the historical facts of the martyrs' lives, but also situating them as these kind of uh, thaumaturgical, wonder-working figures who could do something for people here now, we wouldn't have a cult uh, today. But I think as we start to look into the 19th century, I want to highlight some of the American contributors to the cult. The other interesting thing that starts to happen is not only does the cult come roaring back in Quebec, which is its birthplace, in the 19th century it starts to spread for the first time into Anglophone uh, um, areas, both Anglophone Canada and the United States. Uh, One of, I think, the greatest champions of the martyr's cult was actually a Protestant and uh, a real anti-Catholic writer, Francis Parkman, one of the most popular uh, academic historians of the, of the 19th century. Uh, Parkman was fascinated by the martyrs, uh, and even, it's been suggested by some writers, sort of saw them as, uh, as a sort of an ongoing, mystical, uh, possibly even miraculous presence in his own life. Uh, Parkman, of course, was uh, the celebrated and, and sometimes vilified, but always turgidly romantic, Uh, historian of um, North America's um, colonial past. He uh, wrote a number of books on the Jesuits, and really uh, his anti-Catholicism was really confronted with what he saw as their heroic valor. Parkman constantly had to try to answer this question, how could men who were nourished by a church, which he saw as being so wrong on so many levels, uh, how could men who were so emasculated uh, as he thought, by uh, uh, a religion which demanded their clerical celibacy, produce such gems of manly valor. Because when we read Parkman, it's all about masculinity. Uh, and he came to the conclusion that uh, the martyr's heroism was genuine, uh, and that their cult really, in some ways, should be adopted by all 
uh, right-thinking North Americans. This despite his Protestantism. So Francis Parkman, in, in some ways, was one of the most unlikely, but also one of the most important kind of um, contributors to the, to the cult of the murders uh, in the United States. His sort of groundbreaking books, sort of almost curmudgeonly acknowledgement of the martyrs' uh, virtues, of course inspired more, um, more Catholic writers, uh, and especially John J. Wynne, who I think, without his heroic efforts, we would not have had a canonization. John J. Wynne was an American Jesuit. Uh, it was he who um, really pushed, I think, in many ways, the, the, the cult to its, its final apotheosis with the canonization uh, in 1930. Um, when I think we need to think of almost as being a sort of shark-like person. I mean, he had inexorable energy. Uh, he worked night and day to achieve uh, this this goal, uh, trudging on through decades. Uh, and he really inaugurated a, a period in the cult uh, of a sort of competition, uh, but also collaboration between American and Canadian um, Catholics to achieve uh, their, the, the martyrs' canonization. So you've um, touched now that, that we've sort of moved also into the American realm, touched on the fact that these martyrs, and one of the reasons they're so interesting is that they're actually taken up by different groups mm-hmm. um, in different kinds of ways, and, and you show that in the book. So in the 19th and 20th centuries then, maybe you could really sort of briefly tell us just a little about how they are taken up differently by Anglo-Canadians, Americans, um, French-Canadians, Quebecois, um, as well as others, too. Perfect, yeah. Uh, I think we touched on the French Canadians already. In a sense, they become part of the whole sort of narrative of victory through defeat and a way of understanding the fall of Quebec. Uh, with the Americans, it's slightly different. What we find uh, with American Catholics in the 19th and in the early 20th century is they're faced with a historiography, very much like uh, the kind written by Francis Perkman, who we just discussed, which throws a, a lot of stuff at Catholics, uh, and a lot of it's contradictory. The sort of uh, the heads of this historiographic hydra are the following. One is, well, Catholicism's new. Uh, really, America's roots are Protestant with the Mayflower and the Puritans and this kind of thing. Uh, another head is, well, okay, Catholicism is actually ancient, but you've always been on the wrong side. You've been on the side of Mar- um uh, monarchism versus individual liberty. You've been on the side of enslaving the individual's consciousness rather than free thought. Uh, uh, so one of the ways that uh, American historiographers, uh, Catholics, were trying to sort of chop off some of these heads was using this the, the figures of the martyrs, who they presented as uh, evidence of the ancient and very honorable uh, history of American Catholics. And another kind of sign of this at the same time is Christopher Columbus and his kind of semi-deification. This was another way in which American Catholics said, look, uh, our history here in, in North America is actually predates that of Protestants. Uh, and, and in many cases, uh, historians were trying to link these kind of ancient, venerable examples, the martyrs, Columbus, with uh, their continuing efforts in what we're seeing in the 19th century in, in, a, um, in very laudable terms at trying to convert and, quote, unquote, civilize Native people, uh, even in the, you know, the 1840s, 50s, uh, and, in fact, into the 20th century. So uh, American Catholics saw in the martyrs a way of 
creating a new uh, historiography that emphasized the ancientness, the grandeur of Catholicism in the Americas. They were part of that, that whole sort of mission. And part of the difference between uh, the American cult and the, the Quebec cult has to do with this very strong sense of place. And this is where we get the sort of um, the division of the martyrs according to this very artificial international um, border which, which kind of comes into being. Uh, we see Isaac Jogues, René Goupil, and Jean de la Lande adopted as sort of American apostles in comparison with their five uh, other canonized uh, individuals who are almost seen as Canadian Christs. There's a sort of um, cutting of the cult into sort of two unequal parts. Because they die on the other side of the border. They die in upstate New York. They die in upstate New York. Therefore, they're, yes, they're ours in a sort of a way. Part of, uh, of this sort of um, posturing uh, is, is it's about space. It's about blood. If you go to um, the, the shrine of the, um, of the North American martyrs, it's actually called um, the Shrine of Our Lady of Martyrs in Noriusville. There's a lot of emphasis placed on this is the place, this is where. Uh, there's a, a sort of a, there's even this part of the shrine that's called the ravine, where you descend down uh, gradually. You're reading these different extracts from the Jesuit relations that are up on these kind of scroll signs. You're going into what is purported to be uh, the death place of, of René Goupil. This idea that they're ours because they died here, even though they were born in France is very much a part of the American cult. It's a difference between uh, uh, the Anglo-Canadian the, and the American um, uh, cults versus that uh, in Quebec, which is much less space-based, because, in fact, none of the martyrs died in Quebec. They all died in Ontario or in New York. Right, but it's linked through, through common ancestry. I mean, that, that's the way that it's viewed. So one of the things that caught my attention was when you describe um, sort of Anglo-Canada in the uh, second half of the 20th century, or maybe maybe more correctly in sort of the 1950s, 1960s, um, what you call the, the Protestantization of, of the martyr's cult, that it actually, these Catholic martyrs who died these bloody deaths get incorporated into the Canadian public school curriculum, which is totally fascinating to me. So how does that... How does that happen, and how are they viewed in that context? This is one of the most interesting transformations of the cult. I, I, I agree with you. My two favorite parts are Catherine de St. Augustine and Canada in the 1940s and post-war era with the Cold War. What's, what seems to happen there is that we've talked about the Quebecois situation, we've talked a little bit about the Americans, now let's deal with the Anglo-Canadians. What we sort of start to see emerging during the Second World War and in the immediate aftermath is there's this real sense of wanting to grow up as a nation. This is now um, um, a country that's fought in Europe in two different very bloody world wars. Uh, it's a, it's a, a place that's having an emerging sort of sense of kind of identity crisis, but also confidence at the same time. And there's this sort of um, desire to have a kind of founding myth. And against all odds, uh, who becomes our Abraham Lincolns and our George Washingtons? It's these dead Jesuit missionaries. We start to see, uh, in the, even as early as the, uh, the 20s and 30s, this kind of flourishing of artistic and literary representations uh, of the martyrs. And they're sort of um, being kind of written in, in kind of 
broader kind of terms. So instead of being Catholic, they're now presented as Christian. Instead of uh, being seen as, uh, as inevitably French, they're now Canadian. They become the sort of great epic foundation narrative of Canada. And they're celebrated in the 50s in some really quite extraordinary ways. In 1949, we have one of the greatest pageants ever staged in Canada in terms of numbers of people. Um, it's called a pageant called Salute to Canada. It's written by Daniel Lord, who's an American Jesuit, and it's full of Canadian nationalism paired with the story of the North American martyrs. Uh, what's interesting about this, though, and what shows us about the kind of transformative potential of the martyr story is that it's at once a historical story about what happened to a group of men in the 1640s, but it's also a contemporary story because the, the sort of second climax of this pageant is when the entire audience who are sitting outside in this kind of natural uh, amphitheater are presented with the same option that faced the martyrs to die for their faith or to uh, be craven cowards and capitulate to uh, this kind of bullying. Who are the bad guys in this context? They're, in fact, uh, the, the, the communist army who come in and sort of jackbooted, uh, holding these kind of... Um, in trouble. Like... Are they holding, what, like guns and things? No, how did they... They, they have... Um, oh, the hammer and sickle? Or? No, they have uh, torches. Torches. And they, they, they force the audience to make a choice between their Catholic faith or their Christian ideals yeah. or their Canadian nationalism and, of course, godless communism. And but it's not just Catholicism. It is more like this idea of Christianity at this point, right? Or, or faith it, in general. Exactly, right? exactly. Yeah. And really how they managed to twin this, this kind of improbable thing of how can we ha talk about uh, uh, the choices made by uh, men, you know, on the Canadian frontier in the, in the 1640s with what's going on now? Well, there's kind of two ways. One was visual. Um, the, the main... Um, we just start this part over. Yeah, yeah. I'm really, yeah, really sure. struggling. Sorry. Yeah, no problem. So why don't why don't we just um, uh, start from the the bit about the the play itself by Daniel Lord? Yeah, I'm yeah. really sorry. No, I've just no been problem. struggling through this entire interview. <laughs> You've been doing a fantastic what, job. I just so inarticulate. I can't. No, are you kidding me? You've been totally articulate. No, no, yeah. it's been great. Okay, I yeah. just I can't even remember the name for. Torches. Torches, yeah. Yes. Like it keeps... Okay. So <laughs> No, no, no. It's been, no, where it's been were fantastic. We? Where were we? Okay, um, so we were talking about... Okay, so what? So some of these ways in which the murders were celebrated in the post-war period were very unusual. The pageant written by Daniel Lord uh, and presented to a crowd of thousands outside the Midland Martyr Shrine uh, in 1949 is perhaps the, the prime example. Here we have Canadian nationalism and a kind of rewriting of the martyr's epic uh, for the Cold War period appear kind of together. And one of the most interesting characters in this pageant has to be the evil Iroquois medicine man. He is the one who med uh, menaces the, the martyrs. He is the one who is instrumental in achieving their deaths. But also at the kind of crescendo of the performance, it is he who div uh, um, takes off his his traditional costume to reveal himself to be nothing other than a communist Red Army soldier. No. Whereby the entire crowd is surrounded by all the extras, 
also wearing these uh, Red Army outfits, who threaten them with, again, immediate martyrdom do they, uh, should they not convert to the communist cause. What this does is that it, it, it uses the word or the idea of red in two different ways. The martyrs had to face the first red menace in the persons of the Iroquois who killed them, according to this, this take on the story. Now we as Canadians must decide whether we have the courage to face a second red menace in the specter of godless communism. Do we believe in Canadian democratic values? Do we cling to the cross? Will we be able to master it? Let us pray to the North American martyrs to guide us. This becomes the great kind of um, cry of uh, Canada in, in the, the Cold War era. It's a fantastic moment because you actually, literally in this play, have... Iroquois morphing into revealing themselves to be communists, but as you were saying, it's also this really transitional moment, at least in terms of how Anglo-Canada is reappropriating these martyrs, because they become not just specific examples of a Catholic moment, and a, and a French Catholic moment at that, but all of a sudden they become examples of a, a kind of um, non-specific sort of Christian Canada, or even just faithful Canada, in some sense, vis-a-vis yes. -vis the communist other. And it's interesting that the pageant was called Salute to Canada. It was very much a morphing of the martyr story to a wider national and nationalistic stage. So one of the things that I had wanted to ask you about, um, because this is, it's a beautiful book, um, both in how it's written, of course, and your, your writing is very, is very vivid, but also because there are a lot of images, and you play a lot with imagery. In this case, we have the example of the play, but you also talk a lot and show a lot of actual um, images, paintings, sometimes photographs, but mainly paintings of the martyrs, and how those paintings change and, and play into the cult itself, the promotion of the cult. Is there a particular image that stands out for you or um, images that were especially important in the promotion and um, uh, transformation of the cult over time? Well, in a way, working with the imagery was one of the, the most fun parts of, of writing the book because you can actually see it. The evidence is uh, not just changing and morphing in front of your eyes, but there's also the kind of hidden history. And um, the thing I love the most about being a religious studies scholar and, and getting to, to be a researcher, is going into the back rooms of shrines, seeing the stuff that you're not supposed to see, hearing the stories about things that you're maybe not supposed to hear. And most of those stories revolved around imagery. Uh, for example, in uh, the Midland Shrine uh, in the 1980s, uh, it was Jacques Monet who told me this story, just as I was getting started on this project. Uh, he said, you realize that big altarpiece that shows the martyrs in glory up in the clouds looking saintly, that's not even the whole painting. There's a whole part of it that's actually underneath the stucco. They moved it, they kind of put the stucco up over it so as not to damage it, and then reattached the frame so it would look complete. He said, but underneath the stucco is the hidden part of the painting. And that's all the martyrs meeting their gory deaths in kind of um, fantastic kind of detail. That we decided to cover up because of the controversy about how this uh, affected uh, the representation of, of Native peoples. So we also uh, have the, the example of um, the, this wonderful bas relief, again, showing Brebeuf and, and Gabrielle Lallemand uh, meeting their, their maker. Their faces are twisted and contorted in agony. Those of their Native torturers show this kind of fiendish joy. 
This used to be the absolute masterpiece of the Midland Murder Shrine. People would come from, from miles around to see this. It's positioning under the final um, uh, uh, cross in the, the Stations of the Cross, drew a kind of implicit parallel of, of Jesus' sufferings with those of the martyrs. Where is this now? It's in the basement of the priest's residence. This uh, the sort of outcry or, or rethinking that, that take, took place uh, in the aftermath of the Second Vatican Council about the, the, the Jesuit martyrs, and particularly about violent depictions of their deaths, had the force to kind of move that, uh, that bas relief out of the church, out of its uh, you know, accustomed place, thronged with incense and candles, down to the sort of ignominious uh, retreat into the basement, but not its destruction, interestingly enough. So the story of images, how they change over time, how they're recolored, reconfigured, how figures move. Another uh, interesting image from the, from the book is uh, an originally 17th century lithograph, uh, or I, I guess etching, that becomes retaken over in the 19th century. One of the figures, one of the most fascinating figures, is uh, one of the tiniest uh, background um, uh, uh, figures is, is Joseph Anahare, who was a native man, Algonquian, who died in 1650 and who's praised in this original 17th century work of art as a kind of an, another North American martyr. Uh, by the time we get to the 19th century, literally the place of this figure has been taken just by a swirl of smoke. He's literally gone up in a puff of smoke. He's no longer anywhere to be seen. And in fact, until Tim Pearson's very recent book, Becoming Holy uh, in Early Canada, Joseph Anahari seems to have completely been forgotten. Now he's back, and I would uh, advise anyone who's interested about native martyrs uh, to read Pearson's very fine new work. It's fascinating. I mean, you really uh, get a sense in your book of the kind of you know visceral, the, the power of images, as you said, to actually erase someone um, from our, our collective memories, but also the kind of visceral reaction that people have. The, the story you were just telling before about the bas relief that, that gets moved, as I recall, um, in your book, you interview some Aboriginal women who both went to the shrine when they were younger, I think, and also have gone back more recently, and that they recall having this real, I mean, visceral reaction, the sense of almost nausea at yeah. seeing the way that their people were being portrayed um, as these fiendish, as you said, fiendish mm -hmm. characters, um, to such a degree that one of the women who you interview actually runs out of the shrine. Yes. Right? She's so horrified by what she's seeing. Um, so certainly to see that kind of power that images hold is, is an amazing part of this book, and it, it kind of, it runs throughout your, your story here, which is fantastic. Um, so uh, I wanted, we don't have that much more time, but I did want to sort of end on uh, a kind of a more general note maybe and ask you what, uh, two things. First of all, you, you flip back and forth between a narrative style that is um, a very kind of present tense narrative style and then one that's a little more removed, maybe more what we're used to from a historical analysis. Mm -hmm. What has the reaction been to your writing? How have people 
um, what have people said about the changes in style that you show throughout the book? Okay. Well, I, I did want to make this book somewhat variegated. I thought right from the start, uh, there were sort of two kind of foundation stories about this. One I just told you about uh, Jacques Monet, when he told me about the, the fact that there was a part of the picture that was hidden. I thought, oh, I need to uncover the rest of that. I want to trace back and find out what made that happen. The other was uh, when I was talking to a colleague, Georges Shiwi, and he told me in the 1950s uh, how he was forced as a young Native kid uh, to kneel down and to beg the forgiveness of the North American martyrs for all the supposed sins that his ancestors had done against them. I thought, how on earth is that even possible? How can something that was conceived to be uh, such an honorable thing be used in such a cowardly way? against someone so vulnerable. It, these two things made me want to tell the story of the martyrs, but I determined right from the beginning that I wanted to tell it in a particular way. This is a hugely emotional and a hugely bloody story. And I thought, I don't want to dissect this in bloodless prose. I want to evoke and describe as well as analyze. I can't make people um, implicated in this story unless I, unless I do that. This, uh, I think as academics we have a tendency often to want to pin the butterfly to the board and kind of start going, going crazy. Why not also allow the butterfly to fly a little? Why not see it in flight? Why not have a more kind of light touch or a more descriptive element? Uh, why not evoke emotion as well as intellectual engagement? So I wanted to write a book that had uh, narrative sections that would bring the reader along into the time. Be that uh, alongside Isaac Shogues as he's waiting outside the longhouse to go in and receive what will eventually be uh, the, the death blow. Uh, to be with Jean de Brébeuf as he's waiting for the downpour of boiling water that will end his life in a kind of mock baptism. That will be with Catherine de St. Augustine as she is communing in these moments of, of spiritual mysticism with this dead martyr. To be with all the other people that contributed to this long kind of links in all of the different, this delicate, this fragile chain, it's all made of individual lives. And it's made of these moments of ecstasy, of agony. You cannot capture that just in academic writing. You have to go beyond. You have to make people experience, feel, as well as think. And so it was just part of my program right from the beginning. What's the reaction been like? All over the map. Some people um, have welcomed those sorts of forays, and I should mention, it's, it's not the whole book, um, it's, but it, there are parts of it. Some have been um, maybe perhaps a little less enthusiastic, um, but I think it's, it's time to start realizing that unless we perhaps change something of our approach, we may lose out. Uh, I thought it was interesting um, a couple of years ago that it was a novelist, a very esteemed Canadian novelist, Joseph Boyden, who was tapped to write a biography of Louis Riel and Gabrielle Dumont rather than an academic. Why would the publishers do this? Because they wanted someone who could convey the passion, the interest, and the importance of this figure without getting lost under an avalanche of footnotes and tedium. We have to reach our students. We have to reach our wider audience with why Canadian history matters. Why should we care 
about these figures? Why should we care about their history? We need to show the, uh, the impact. And we can't always, in my opinion, do that if we stay safely, kind of on the banks, looking into the river. Sometimes we need to also throw ourselves in. So on that note, then, I think that's a great place to end. So thank you so much for being here. And Emma's actually in studio with me right now. We are looking at each other. So this has been a very exciting interview for me because I actually have had real contact with a human being during this interview. So thank you so much for being here in Montreal. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me, Hillary. (laughs) 